0: As of 2007, there were 100 million people in the United States who had no contact with a church. They didn't attend holidays or anything like that. And out of that 100 million, there were 15 million who still professed faith in Jesus, which means as of 12 years ago, there were 85 million people in the U.S. not connected with a local church. Now, that number made up 33% of the Adult population in the U.S. And the thing that is kind of concerning is that in just seven years from 2007 to 2014, that percentage jumped from 33% up to 43%. Now, as you think about that, and as we think about that as a church, that can seem extremely daunting. But there's good news in this area as well, because the fact is, is that many people who fall into this category, this 43% who are both unchurched and unbelieving, many people who fall into this category are people that have relationships with me or with you. They are our coworkers or our neighbors. They are our friends and our loved ones, which means that while many of them may be unchurched and unbelieving, they are not unreached and unengaged like people around the globe, over two billion people who have no access to the gospel. It can be a reminder to us that God has put us in the place we are for a purpose. God has brought us here as a church for a purpose. But as we begin to think about what it looks like for us to engage this world around us in a changing landscape, in a changing world, the thing that we're going to have to learn is that you can't, as a church, just expect people to come to you. It's great when that happens, but the, the, the livelihood of that type of approach isn't going to happen very much longer. I think we can learn a lot from our Christian brothers and sisters around the world who are maybe a little farther ahead on this trail than we are, like people in England. There are two pastors in England, a guy named Tim Chester and Steve Timmis. Whenever they think about what it looks like to engage the world in in the type of world we are moving towards, they say this, they say, we need to do church and mission in the context of everyday life. We need to see that what we do here on a weekend doesn't stay here, but it carries us out day in and day out and affects how we approach life each and every day. Now we are getting ready to start a series, walking through the book of 1 Peter starting today, and we're going to spend the next five weeks in this series. And as we walk through this series, the thing we're going to see again and again is that it's a call for us to bring together community and mission. To see that community and mission belong together. Because sometimes in the church, we have the the tendency to pit those two things against one another. We think that community is the enemy of mission. Or that mission is the enemy of community. But the thing that we see as we jump into a book like 1 Peter is that whenever we run after community and God's design for community, it drives us to the mission of God. And whenever we run after the mission of God, it drives us into God's design for community. So as we step into this series and we walk through this series, our hope is that we will come together as a church and that we will accept this invitation into community and into mission. And we will come to the end and say, let's do this thing that God has set before us. Let's run after this mission that God has called us to. Let's see what it looks like for us to be faithful to God's call. Now we are going to be in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you have a Bible or you want to grab one from the seat back in front of you or under your seat, you can grab the Bible and turn over to 1 Peter Now, I want to say welcome to those of you here with us at Newburgh. Welcome to those of you at West Campus and online. We are so glad that you guys are with us. If it's your first time with us, I think this would be a great time to jump in maybe for the next five weeks to see a little bit about what we are about and a little bit about God's mission and God's heart for our world. So I hope you'll jump in these next five weeks and and join us as we walk through this series. Now we're going to pick things up by looking at these first two verses in the book of 1 Peter where we find it saying this. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter was one of Jesus' followers while he was here on earth. He was just a common fisherman when he first came to know Jesus. But because of the time he spent with Jesus, his life was radically transformed. And he ended up being one of the major leaders in the early church. And now he's writing this letter. And he says, it's to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, these two words, chosen and exiles, they don't really seem to go together, but they are major themes throughout this book. Whenever we see this word chosen, we need to think about the privileged identity of believers as the chosen people of God, as those who've been set apart by God for a reason. That is a privilege. But at the same time, we need to see that oftentimes in this life, we feel like exiles. We feel like we are on the margins of society and That shouldn't be abnormal. It's kind of normal. In fact, it's been the state of the church for a long time. So here he writes and he says to those chosen living as exiles. He says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now here we see a little bit of the purpose why God has chosen these people, why while he, while he's sent them out even as exiles. It is to be obedient. God saved us for a purpose to reflect him to the world. And we also see this idea of to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, which is just a, a picture of the special relationship we're invited into with God. It's a picture of the covenant relationship that God invited his people into in the Old Testament, which is just a way of saying it is this privileged relationship with God that people experience and the way by which we're brought in is by the blood of Jesus. We're going to dive into this idea today as we walk through this passage. But the first major thing we're going to see as we look at verses 3 through 12, walking through 1 Peter, is our privileged identity in life. See, as believers, we have a privileged identity in life. It is the reality of our identity. It's it's what is really true about who we are. And here's what Peter has to say about it in verses 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. Now, if you jump down there to verses 10 through 12, you see Peter talking a little bit more about this idea of what I think points to the privilege we have as believers. I'm just going to skim over this passage, but it's pretty powerful. He says, hey, concerning this salvation, the prophets searched carefully. They they carefully investigated. They, They inquired into the times or the seasons when what you are now experiencing would be a reality. He goes on to say there at the end of verse 12 that this gospel message that has saved us is something that the angels long to catch a glimpse of. That's a privilege that we have as being born into the family of God. This privileged life is something we shouldn't take for granted. Now, I recognize that whenever we think about this idea of privilege, sometimes in our world today, we we like to dismiss that or run away from that idea completely because we think it, it may infer something or take away something from what we have done in our life. But the thing I think we need to see as we think about the privileged life as believers here is that our privilege as believers gives us a way to face this life in a way that the rest of the world cannot, face life, and that should be something that rather than dismissing, we embrace and press into. You see, this idea of privilege is a special advantage that you have because of who you are. Special advantage that you have because of who you are, and that is the reality that we have, and whenever we face opposition, we need to recognize that reality. You see, privilege often comes because of who your family is. I know that that's true for me. Growing up, I considered it a major privilege to be the child of Bill and Donette Bondurant. Growing up in my family, I had special advantages that I recognize. if I would have been born into another family, I may not be where I am today because I would have had a different experience. You see, growing up, one of my favorite advantages that I had was that my dad served as an administrator at uh, Kentucky Christian University, which meant that he had a key to everything on campus. And the great thing about that as a junior high boy was that that meant I had access to a college gym anytime I wanted year round. And so what we would often do is throughout the year from nine to midnight, we would go down to the gym, use my dad's key, and I would have access to this gym. And I would go in and I would play all night long with my friends. And it was a special advantage I had, not because of anything I had done, but because of who my father was. And in this passage today, we see this idea of privilege because of the family we have been born into. But it's not the family we've been born into here on earth that matters. He speaks about a different kind of birth. We see in verse 3 that Peter basically breaks out in worship as he thinks about this new birth that we have into the family of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the thing I want us to see here is that whether it was a privilege being born into your family here on earth or not, God invites us into his family. And that is a privilege. Regardless of what your experience is, I recognize that not everyone has had the best earthly parents here on earth. They haven't had the best earthly family. But God says, hey, if that's you, I want to invite you into a truly privileged family. And that is the family of God himself. And this type of new birth is offered through faith. And it tells us here that it's given because of or or through the resurrection of Jesus. Not because of our own goodness, but because of what God has done for us. Another privilege that we have because of this new birth, Peter says, there is this living hope that we have been given. Now, rather than having a hope tied to what we can see or achieve on our own, we've been given a living hope. A hope that's not built on futile things that will not last, but something that is guaranteed into the future. And that living hope, I don't know about you, but it's something that I need as I face life day in and day out. As I pulled up my phone this morning and I saw that there was another shooting, I knew about El Paso yesterday where 20 people were killed, but I pulled up today and see nine more people killed in Dayton. I need a living hope. And as I thought about that hope, I just wanted us as a church to take a minute to pray for those affected by both of those because we're coming from a place of real hope. So let's pray for a minute. God, I thank you for being a God who gives us a living hope. God, as we think about what's happened in El Paso and what's happened in Dayton, God, it breaks our hearts because we know that this is evidence that this world is not as you desire it to be. God, there is hurt and there is brokenness. But God, you are a God who is our refuge and our strength in times of chaos So, God, as we are tempted now to to maybe um, maybe just dismiss this world, as we are tempted to even dismiss any hope in this life, God, would you help us to be a people who press into your living hope? God, would you bring peace and comfort to those families who've been affected by these shootings? God, would you help us and the churches in these areas to be a light in the midst of darkness? God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for the first hearers of this message, they were in an interesting position because they had placed their faith in God, because they experienced this new birth. What they had experienced in day-to-day life was oftentimes losing their family rights and losing their inheritance. And if you put yourself in their shoes, it's pretty easy to see how you would find yourself in a pretty hopeless place. But when Peter writes to them, he doesn't just write about this living hope. He goes on to talk about this second privilege of being born into the family of God and that it's that that believers have been given a new inheritance that is imperishable, unspoiled and undefiled and unfading. These words speak about the eternity of this inheritance that has been granted to us. It is an inheritance that he tells us is kept in heaven. It is something that is secure. Now this is pretty remarkable to think about for what Peter is saying to this original church and to us. What he's saying is, hey, the same faith that has caused you to be ostracized by the world, the same faith that has jeopardized your earthly standing is the same faith that legitimizes you as a child of God. And it's the same faith that now secures you as being kept by God's power. That's a pretty powerful reminder and a pretty powerful source of hope in a time of confusion. And Peter talks about this idea of salvation as something that is ready to be revealed. And whenever we think about salvation, that can sound a little strange. Because a lot of times we think about salvation as something that's just happened in the past where we think about salvation as something that happens in the present, right? You've been saved or you're being saved, but here what he's talking about, and it's actually probably the most common way that the New Testament talks about this idea of salvation. It's something that is to come in the future. Now, whenever we think about this idea, that can be a little confusing, but I think a way for us to understand it is to think about an inheritance where you have um, the rights to this inheritance while you're here on earth, but you don't fully enjoy the benefits of that until a day to come. So what Peter is telling us is, hey, you have this salvation that you can hold on to, that it is being kept secure by God, and it's something that is guaranteed to come. It's something you have full access to, and even if you don't fully experience experience it now you will one day that's a cause for us to rejoice in the privilege we have of being his children now such a privileged life should cause us to approach life here on earth differently Peter talks a little bit about this in verses six and seven as he talks about the persecution that these people were they were facing the suffering they were walking through He says, hey, as you face this life, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. God uses it to produce the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever Peter writes about this idea of suffering here, he's thinking specifically about the suffering faced for being a believer because of your faith facing suffering. For these first Christians, this was a very real reality in their lives. And he's saying, hey, your perspective on this stuff should shift. And I think this is an important word for us because I think oftentimes whenever we face suffering because of our faith, we're tempted to respond in one of two ways. We're tempted to respond in defensiveness. So maybe someone says something to us because of our faith, and we just immediately start defending ourselves. We go on social media, we say, you wouldn't believe what so-and-so said. They said this, 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 and this, and they only said it because I'm a Christian. Can you believe the way that they are treating me because of my faith? We immediately try to defend ourselves and to defend this inheritance we've received, even though it's something being kept in heaven for us. Or sometimes instead of defending that way, we defend or we instead of responding that way, we respond with self-pity. We respond and say, Oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe how hard my life is because I'm a believer. Everything's really hard, you know. God's given me this living hope, He's given me this inheritance that's gonna last forever and It's a rough life, you know, because people are just really mean. And we try to get pity from people because of our faith. But I think as we look at this type of hope that we have because of what God has done for us, we see that it's something that rather than causing us to be defensive or or causing us to try to get pity from people should cause us to even face it with joy. You see, because the danger we have if we step into this and we fall into being defensive or self-pity, the danger we face is this, that we have a tendency to get so caught up in defending our rights that we lose our ability to contend for our faith. We get so caught up defending our rights as believers that we actually lose our witness in the world around us. We lose our ability to speak hope into a world because the world thinks we just care about ourselves instead of recognizing that what we have is ultimately secure because of what God has done. Our privileged identity gives us a source of, he tells us in verses 8 and 9, of inexpressible joy. It gives us something to ultimately show this glorious joy that we've received in Jesus. And we're reminded again in verses 10 through 12 that this privileged life can even be seen in a greater way because of what we see with the prophets and the angels. as us being able to experience something that they longed to look on. We have been privileged as being the people of God, but God hasn't just given us this privilege for us to sit in. He's given it to us for a purpose. That's the second thing we're going to see in this next section here is that God has privileged us for a purpose. He's given us a reason for privileging us as his children. Let's pick things up in verse 13. He says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. This idea here of being holy as God is holy points us to this picture of ultimately reflecting our Father. We are to reflect what God is like to the world. That is the purpose for which he has called us. It's the purpose for which he has given us the privilege of being called his children. It is to show the world what he is like. Ultimately, I think what Peter is saying here is he's saying, hey, you do you, but you do the real you. You recognize where your identity is. You rest in that identity and you live out of that identity. See, oftentimes we're told, you know, just be yourself or you do you, you live your life the way you want to. You get happiness wherever you want. But the thing that we miss there is that if we're doing this, running after something outside of God's design for us, it's going to leave us feeling empty. So Peter is saying, if you are a child of God and you want to experience the full benefit of living inside of his plan, then you are to reflect his character to the rest of the world. You need to recognize that your identity is primarily found in whose you are, in the fact that you belong to God as your father. And if you press into that identity, it means that you will live your life differently and that you will show the world what your God is like. That is the reality for us, and that is the purpose for which God has saved us, for the purpose for which he has rescued us. Now, as we come to this point of this passage, one of the things we may be thinking is, how is it that God could possibly redeem us? How is it that we're brought into this privileged life of being, into, or being brought into his family? And As we come to this last section here, looking at verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 3, we see this. We see that what saves us initially or saved us initially changes us continually. What God did to save us whenever we first started this journey, walking towards Jesus, is what changes us as we continue to run after him day in and day out. What saved us initially changes us continually. Let's jump into verse 18 where Peter writes this: He says, For you know that you were redeemed from your former or from your empty way of life life inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God and, or you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Right here, Peter tells us that the way by which we've been saved, the way by which we've been brought into the family of God is by redemption through the precious blood of Christ. It is through redemption with this blood of Jesus. And that should bring a couple of questions to mind. First, what is redemption? Redemption. What is it that God has done when we talk about redemption? And redemption means that he has set us free or that he has liberated us from something we were captive to. He has liberated us from whatever it is that we were enslaved to. Now the question whenever we think about this is, is why is it that redemption is necessary? Why do we need to be redeemed? The story of the Bible is clear on this point, and Peter gives us a little hint here as well. He says, hey, you were in your empty ways inherited from your fathers. You see, the story of the Bible tells us that whenever the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, sinned, that sin entered the world, and that sin was then passed on from one generation to the next generation to the next generation, and it is our natural birth. We inherit this type of sin, so we are sinners because of the presence of sin and because we choose to sin in this life. So we need redemption because we are now captive to sin. Since sin entered the world, mankind has had a sin problem. And what we need to see in scripture is that we cannot escape this sin problem on our own. Instead, we need someone to actually rescue us. We need someone else to come and rescue us. Which brings us to the question, how is it that redemption was accomplished? The cost of redemption was great. The cost of redemption wasn't cheap. There was no amount of silver or gold to pay the cost. Rather, the price was paid with the precious blood of Jesus. That's what paid the price for our sin because he came as our substitute. The picture of substitution is seen there in that passage as it talks about Jesus as the unblemished or spotless lamb. You see because throughout the Old Testament God called the people of Israel to come and offer these perfect lambs as a sacrifice for the sin that would cover the sin from one year to the next but what we see here in this passage is that whenever Jesus came to redeem us when Jesus died his blood didn't just cover sin for one year his sin cover or his death covered sin forevermore Jesus' death brought about a redemption that can be experienced from now forever, secured once and for all. It's not something we have to keep running after. It's something that Jesus has done for us. He has paid the price for our sin and he gives us this new birth. But who is it that this new birth is for? Who is it that God invites into this life? Is it a special class? You know, do you have to be at like a certain scale on the the moral goodness scale? Or do you have to be at a certain like depth? Do you have to score like negative three to be into this classification for needing new birth? Jesus teaches us a little bit about this if we look at John chapter three and John chapter four together. You see, in John chapter three, Jesus meets a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is one of the religious leaders at that time. And he probably would have known his Bible as well as just about anyone else in the world at that point. And whenever he's talking with Jesus, he's talking to him because he recognizes that there's something special about Jesus. That Jesus, there's something different about him, that he's clearly a man sent by God, but he doesn't really understand everything. And so he comes to him and he's asking questions. And as they're having conversation, Jesus says to him, he says, hey, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, if you want to see the kingdom of God, then you must be born again. You see, this new birth was for people like Nicodemus. For people who knew their Bible perfectly, who maybe had followed all of the rules, they had checked all of the boxes, but they hadn't had the work of God come into their life. He says, hey, this new birth that is coming, it is a work of God. It's something from outside of you that you can't accomplish by yourself. And the new birth was for Nicodemus. And the new birth is for any of us who have a story like Nicodemus. Maybe you know all the Bible verses. You checked all the boxes growing up in Sunday school. Jesus is saying, hey, new birth is for you. We see at the uh, closer to the end of John chapter three, one of the most famous passages in the Bible comes up when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Salvation was for Nicodemus. Sometimes I think we miss the connection though because of the chapter dividers because the very next chapter we meet a very different character. This time we see Jesus walking along and he comes to a well and he meets the Samaritan woman at the well. And as he's talking with her, he starts a conversation which was a little strange in and of itself. See, because this woman was a Samaritan woman, and a Jewish man wouldn't talk to a woman he didn't know, period, but let alone a Samaritan woman, because the Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews. They were kind of seen as, as half-breds. They, were, they weren't fully the people of God at all, and so they were enemies with the Jews. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus was a Jew, Okay. So that was a problem whenever they interacted with one another. But Jesus comes and he strikes up this conversation with this woman. And as he's talking with her, it comes to light that she's had five husbands before and she's now with a man who's not her husband. And as Jesus is talking with her, he's talking about this source of water, this source of life that will satisfy her, not just that day, but for the rest of her life. And as Jesus is talking with her, she says, hey, where can I find this water? And he says, I am the source of that water. And as we look at these stories together, we see that the new birth is also, for the Samaritan woman. It's for those who maybe lived their lives running after whatever they wanted to, whatever they thought would bring satisfaction in that moment. If that's your story, new birth is for you. Timothy Keller talks about this idea of sin that I think helps us understand a little bit about what we're talking about. He says, sin is looking to something else besides God for your salvation. It is putting yourself in the place of God and becoming your own Savior and Lord as it were. You see, one way of doing this is to live your life in such a way that you run after whatever you want to. You live with no regard for any moral rules. You live your life with no regard for any type of moral standard. And you think that if you just run after whatever brings you happiness, whether it's money or power or it's sex or anything else, you can just run after whatever and you can find fulfillment. This is a way of seeking to be your own savior of seeking to be your own Lord. And we see that this is sin. This actually separates us from God and keeps us from enjoying what God has for us. And new birth is for people who have that type of sin problem. But you see, that's not the only way to try to find or build your own salvation. There's another way as well. It's whenever you keep all of the moral rules, you keep all of the moral goodness, you check all of the boxes, but you do it thinking that this puts God in your debt. That because of the way you live your life, God is indebted to actually reward you in one way or another. Or he's indebted to actually answer your prayer in one way or another. If that's your story, if that's what you've pressed into, new birth is for you. You see, the thing that we need to see as we think about this passage and we think about this idea here of how we are saved and who it is that needs salvation, we need to see that if we keep running our own direction, we're never going to find satisfaction. That only Jesus can give us this satisfaction we so desire. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this story God, I thank you that because of what you have done, you invite us into a brand new life. God, as we think about this passage, we even praise you that you give us the privilege of being called your children. God, not only that, but you also give us this living hope. You give us this new inheritance, God, and we want to ultimately live in that. We want to press into that. So, God, would you help us to be a people who see our need of you, and instead of running away, we press into that need. God, you are good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.